You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Uh, um, tonight, we're thrilled to be hosting poets Ned Balbo, Greg Mawson, and Nomi Stone. They're each going to read for um, 12 to 15 minutes, and then we're going to do a little Q&A, and they will each read a closing poem. And afterwards, there will be some time to chat and buy books, I hope. Um, okay, so I'm going to begin by introducing Ned. Ned Balbo is the author of The Trials of Edgar Poe and Other Poems, awarded the Poets Prize and the Donald Justice Prize. His fifth book, Three Nights of the Perseids, was selected by Erica Dawson for the Richard Wilbur Award. A co-winner of the Willis Barnstone Translation Prize, he is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Translation Fellowship. Balbo was recently a visiting faculty member in Iowa State University's MFA program in creative writing and environment. He lives in Baltimore with his wife, poet essayist Jane Satterfield. Ned Balbo's poems cast an amused and kindly but concerned gaze over our deeply distracted society, swerving ever farther from what is durable and real. Perhaps we feel more powerful than people of older eras, but... Quote, can we love the world as much as Rembrandt, who took in every shadow with his eye and painted every gleam on the brocade of Cox's lieutenant, he wonders in one poem. In his own poetry, honoring every nuance of every scene with resonant meditations and a beautiful formal embroidery, he does love the world as much as Rembrandt, blighted though the world may be. Erica Dawson writes... Balbo welcomes us into the chaos, but leaves us calm with the certainty that we all have the ability to find ourselves back in the light. Please help me to welcome Ned Balbo. Thank you, Shailene, and uh, Judy, of course, uh, an old friend from the library, and thank you to every single person who came from the bottom of my heart. Without you, the room would be empty. (laughs) It means so much to have some folks here. Thank you. Um, The nice thing about a small audience is that I can read uh, pretty much anything I wish, and word really won't get out as to what I read or how I read. I love that feeling. Uh, I'm going to start out with a a little memory of Iowa, Uh, my time spent there. uh, First time since grad school was nice to return for a few years and teach with some great folks, including the talented Deb Marquardt. Um, This is a sonnet, Time's Passage at Whiskey River, which is the name of a bar in Iowa. And uh, as we know, um, there's an epigraph, free beer tomorrow. You know that's a lie whenever you see that sign. Time's Passage at Whiskey River. I read the sign. It's late. Tomorrow's near. The beer's flat. No one taps another keg. The shortstop stumbles on the runner's leg while frozen strangers balance at the bar, slow-motion gestures wasted on the air. Outside, 
The tattooed girl takes one more drag while friendly foes attack the punching bag that offers glory to the challenger with changed despair. Surprised, the shortstop blinks, eyes flashing back and forth in diamond dust. Young men with sunken cheeks wait for the drinks the tattooed girl withholds because she must. When all our hopes past midnight turn to sorrow, there's no free beer today and none tomorrow. <laughs> Just keep waiting for that free beer. You're not going to get it. Um, okay, I'm just going to skip around. Hey, um, modern technology. We're all on Facebook, most of us, aren't we? Um, even if we're ashamed of it, embarrassed by it. Um, and I suppose the afterlife were like being on Facebook. You know? Because one day, you know, we're going to be there, if there is one. This is called Dead Book. The title, of course, spelled lowercase, just like Facebook. And the epigraph is, for all your post-life social media needs. <laughs> Dead book. Reluctantly, I opened an account sooner than I'd expected or desired. You won't believe how many friends I found. Requests backed up. No password was required. The latest status updates bring surprises decades out of date. A few are sad. I scroll the page, absorbed. A comment rises, then descends on some eternal thread. I wouldn't say I like the conversations, although I'd feel much worse if there were none. I post replies, then wait, a slight impatience stirring. Is someone out there? Anyone? At first, I felt relieved to find my profile looked complete the moment I logged in, but why can't I update it? In a while, I'll click on help and maybe try again. I'm told the site is free and always will be. Still, I feel unsettled, slightly lost. Is nothing tangible? Who's listening, really? Why should I care if strangers like my post? Yes, there are strangers here. We're not all friends. Somehow, the long day's twilight never ends. I tap the keys. There's nothing else to do. It won't be long before I friend you, too. <laughs> okay, got one eye on the clock here. Um, Prince, we loved him. He's gone. Very sad. This is called musicology. And uh, it's, uh, I think, generated by reading how generous he was and also anonymously uh, with his uh, funds and money to local Chanhassen elementary schools for music programs. Musicology for Prince Rogers Nelson. And I think, you know, all of us that play music in school must be very saddened by the way music programs have been cut back in so many places. So, of course, this is, I think, uh, has that uh, at the bottom as well. Musicology. Would boy or girl standing at the keyboard after class hears music no one's playing caught in memory? The risers wait, ready for chorus members to line up. Sand blocks and sleigh bells lie at rest until tomorrow's class, and yet this black piano, electric, digital, pulses with power, still plugged in, screen aglow. 
What girl or boy untrained, used to the old cacophonies that classmates bang out when the teacher leaves, resists the urge or heeds some other call? Who hears something and has to let it out? The period's over. Everybody's gone. Ethereal xylophones, their voices muted, lie beside their mallets in a box, stacked tambourines untouched, produce no sound. And so, because you gave so much to many through your songs, sweat-soaked performances, dance moves a blur, medleys falsetto-drenched through funky breaks and shouted ribaldries, and more, an artist moved to charity who shared his largesse with those most in need anonymously, you made sure this boy or girl or any classmate here could pause within the haven of his solitude, keep listening, draw near the instrument, and gently bring one finger to the keys to capture what might soon have disappeared unheard, the fragment of some favorite song, the scattered notes that rescued form a tune brand new, the chorus soon to start rehearsal, tromping down the halls, will bring their noise, chaos, and teasing with them, though for now this girl or boy persists in listening alone, but changed, the overtones just summoned with the last note ringing still, alive, in mind and ear, the world enlarged somehow as all that you've awakened slowly stirs. We lost David Bowie, too, not long ago. And uh, so this is a, a poem in Trimeter. It's rhymed like the author's prologue in uh, Dylan Thomas's collected poems, uh, which means that uh, the rhymes run one way in one stanza and then backward in the next stanza. But of course, you may or may not hear that as I read. And it's about space oddity, um, space odyssey, Kubrick's film, um, David Bowie, and also... Major Tom. Major Tom and David Bowman after Space Oddity in 2001 A Space Odyssey. What's the oddity in David Bowie's song about the astronaut we know as Major Tom? There's none. It's just a pun on Kubrick's Odyssey, inspired by the shot of Frank Poole cast adrift, unspooling into space past any hope of rescue from unending darkness betrayed by a computer's dark intelligence. So too will David Bowman meet the same misfortune unless the only voice besides his own is silenced, the vital key in hand, each cartridge he removes erasing memory, regressing sentience into a few short lines of daisy answer to eerily winding down. But Major Tom alone, sounds unafraid, it's true. The world below him spins away his one last chance to join its gravity, too late. The wife he loves will never see him land. His circuit's dead, he's tensed, prepared to make a choice, propelled from earth and sun without much oxygen. What does he feel, defiance? Ground controls intruders matter less and less. The earth below, still blue, cloud streaked, is now a place he's permanently left, this tin can, all he's got in all the galaxy. But now that Earth is gone for good, the steady hum of static drowns all thought of turning back. What's wrong or right resolved, I'm free. Okay. And those poems are from this book. 
I'll read a few from this other book, which came out a little bit earlier, Upcycling Palmanach. And uh, this is a uh, ballad called Actors Talking While They Drive. I don't know how you feel, but I hate watching TV or movies, and suddenly they're driving along, and they just turn and start chatting away. Whoever's next to them, it's like, you're going to have a crash. You're going to kill yourself. Every so often, that's exactly what's going to happen. More often, it's very unrealistic. And they just continue driving happily along, and nothing dire happens. I hate that. This is called Actors Talking While They Drive. It always happens in the course of chase, escape, or dialogue. Some actor steering past the shores of traffic smiles with a shrug, then launches into monologue, eyes straying from the road. I watch, call out, look straight ahead, a plague of fear descending with a touch. Something must happen. That's the source of all suspense. The town's main drag, innocuous, slips past, bright colors bearing new risks, new intrigue, plot twists that viewers catalog at every turn, or else the clutch is just a clutch. Speed through the fog, don't talk when fear extends its touch. When no one crashes, is it worse? The soundtrack rises with its fugue of squeals and sawed-on strings. The doors lock tight, the passenger in league with cop, ex-lover, friend. It's vague, but no one likes the driver much. The passenger fights off fatigue, feigns interest. Fear extends its touch. Stop talking. Watch the road. One tug back from the brink is theirs. Or such swift carnage, its mere epilogue to fear's release and final touch. I'm going to read one more short poem, and that will be the moment that I yield the podium. I'll end with this, Villanelle, the ex-friends. We all have ex-friends. It's a painful, awkward, and not anything that most people like to talk about. Therefore, I'm talking about it, since my specialty is making others uncomfortable. Once again, thank you, Judy, and thank you, Shailene, and everyone who's come. And of course, I'm looking forward to hearing from Nomi and Greg. The ex-friends. The ex-friends like you still, but they're wary when chance meetings force them to extend the courtesy they'd once have given freely. At first, you thought their distance temporary, time away to find themselves or mend. The ex-friends like you still, but they're weary, faced with deadlines, obligations daily undertaken. Though they still intend, they say, with courtesy once given freely, to call you back, though it's unnecessary, painful even, since you understand the ex-friends you still like are feeling wary, wondering if they fooled you, fooled you really. So much work is needed to pretend the courtesy they'd once have given freely, so you part ways, thoughtful, solitary. What thoughtless word long past had marked the end? The ex-friends, like you, still are feeling wary, but relieved. They smiled. You set them free. Thank you. More free. Okay, thank you, Ned. So wonderful. Um, next up, um, G.H. Mawson. Can I call you Greg? <laughs> um, Greg Mawson is the author of Family Snapshot as a Poem in Time, 
as well as three prior books of poetry, Heart X-Rays, which he wrote with Marcus Calasurdo, Questions of Fire, and Season of Flowers and Dust. His poetry and literary criticism have appeared in Measure, Tampa Review, The Cincinnati Review, Smartish Pace, and Loch Raven Review, and his poetry has been nominated four times for the Pushcart Prize. He also edited the anthology Poems Against War, Bending Towards Justice. He holds an MA in writing from the Johns Hopkins Writing Seminars and a BA in English. Greg is a father, writer, lawyer, and dreamer. He practices employee rights and disability rights law as well as general civil litigation. He hails from New York City and lives in Maryland. Greg's newest book has a wonderful feeling of freshness to it. Through unusual formal choices, such as the blotting out of phrases and the use of a child's perspective, he creates a series of poetic visions that feel born of their moment, thumbprinted by life. With freshness comes a sense of intimacy, as if both people and things had stopped pretending and were showing for the first time their true selves. He writes, for example, spring awaits us, colors are mute teachers, tears are just one experience of flowers. Elsewhere he writes, this art must steer perspective through practiced forgetting, as if some dancer launches from posture into grace, the perfect description for the way the book uses art to move beyond art. Please help me to welcome Greg Mawson. Thank you, Shalene, for that uh, introduction and um, for everybody who came here for the, for the reading and uh, to the Pratt for hosting us and for having us. Um, as Shalene said, I'm, I'm going to read from the book, uh, which is sort of just a story uh, of a father and his, his two kids. They're, they're eight and ten now, and they're probably one and three in the book. Uh, the other story that you're not going to be able to hear in the reading but would be in the book um, family snapshot as a poem this time is the sort of the story of the editing, which you could it's sort of been externalized into the book, which I think could also be the story of our how we deal with memory um, and how we also feel about what we've experienced. Uh, so the the book has family snapshot as a poem in time, then it has some children's poems at the end. But I'm just going to throw them in as as I read, and hopefully you'll tell the difference, or maybe I, I have a childlike mentality. But don't tell anybody else. My kids already think that. Um, One. When did the beginning dive within? And when did my past become? Let me fall down on my knees and pray to you, O invisible. If I run from busy roads where it's comic to walk on a brother's back, cross our sister's throat just to drink a glass of water before noon, I guard my windows. Let me be quiet as a mouse in a hole and watch winter's frost perspire off of slick black branches. Yet, spring will come. I too am young. I wish I had thoughts equal to spring. Notes for development. Leave as is. No, I can't. This is from 18. First I had a vision, then I had a life. The daffodils came with spring. Did they ever sing? The winter was a time to hone. 
I'm no longer alone. Did the summer stretch out endlessly? Did the fall entangle me? Two years ago, I I showed my daughter the moon, but I'm too tired for stars. Yesterday, my son watched a squirrel climb a utility pole. His eyes bulged. I took him down the slide for the first time in spring's first glorious afternoon, his mind rearranged. He stomped to the playground steps with a wild surmise. For me, what's amazing has changed. This is 14. Will you get smaller? Asked my daughter. Yes, I'll seem less taller when you get older. Then I'll carry you? She smiled. When bigger, I replied. And go to work in your black car and use your black computer? Dad, you'll stay home? Yes, alone. Though maybe you'll stop by. No, she didn't lie. When you're not busy? Okay, maybe. Remarks. Loosen the lens. Song. Tonight, I never want to let you go. This is called Snuggle Song. This is a children's poem, so I did announce it. When the house is hush and the game's put away, and my mess of milk cleaned up with the day, and the baby in bed, and mom and dad too, and the windows tremble with rain passing through, and the house is too hush, and the game's far away, and I'm stuck where I'm tucked in the bed where I wait while the milk in the fridge calls out through the dark, and my brushed teeth can't change what I want, So I cry and then wail, and Dad comes to me. He reads me a tale, which I know, so I sleep. Yet the wind still whispers, and again I'm awake. And now Mom is here to hush my tears and takes me with her to sleep in her bed. And feeling such rest, snug in their nest, I fall fast into sleep's hand, dreams land. There'll be two more poems. Uh, This is called Prayer for the Moon. As afternoon darkens, the closest trees dim. A first star sparkles. Sky blue thins and shadows spread. Hurry up, moon. As we stroll, we're watched for a hear an owl call. The street is vacant. Not one leaf falls. No squirrel jumps. Hurry up, moon. The next star appears above the dusk's blush. Hoot hoot, zigzags across the hush. There's home. Let's rush. Come on, moon. As sunset thins and falters, falters and fades. As twilight fades and zeroes, lantern my way. Oh. This is the last poem, actually, and also the last one in the family snapshot, which Shailene quoted from, um, 24. Uh, And if you actually read the book, there's really not 24 poems because some of them were just kind of tossed, and that's the sort of fragmentary nature of the snapshot. What glasses of tears will make us smile? 
What rains of joy will make us one day shiver? Notes for development. Moonlit new clouds, close up at night, among shadows. Remarks. Turning to the past for refuge, turning ahead with hope, turning to the mirror with wonder, then back to the flow. Song. Spring awaits us. Colors are mute teachers. Tears are just one experience of flowers. Thank you. Greg, that was lovely. Um, Okay, now I'm going to introduce Nomi Stone. Nomi Stone is a poet and an anthropologist and the author of two poetry collections, Stranger's Notebook and Kill Class. Winner of a Pushcart Prize, her poems appear recently in Poetry, American Poetry Review, The New Republic, Bettering American Poetry, The Best American Poetry, Tin House, New England Review, and elsewhere. Her anthropological articles recently appear in Cultural Anthropology and American Ethnologist, and her ethnographic monographic, Pinelandia, Human Technology and American Empire, is a finalist for the University of California Press Atelier Series for Ethnographic Inquiry inquiry, in the 21st Century. Kill Class is based on two years of fieldwork that she conducted within war trainings in mock Middle Eastern villages erected by the U.S. military across America. Stone has a Ph.D. in anthropology from Columbia, an MPhil in Middle Eastern studies from Oxford, and an MFA in poetry from Warren Wilson College, and she teaches at Princeton. Nomi's poems span a tremendous chasm. There is so much beauty in them, in the gorgeous descriptions of the landscape, in the music of her spare language, in their memories of rare, unscripted gestures. At the same time, they are dead set on showing the damage done by humanity's drive to make borders, to separate them from us. Her ravishing poem, The Door, set in a wood that is a theater of war, ends like this. In Arabic, there is a word that means the cleaving from dormancy or sorrow into first joy, or the arriving mouth of the messenger. It is right on the other side of this wood. Close quote. Between escape from the wood, which we can only dream of, and confinement in the wood, which torments us, lies the experience of the poem, a door that opens and closes. Please help me to welcome Nomi Stone. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Thanks for this beautiful introduction. It's wonderful to be here. Um, And I will preface, before I start reading these poems, just a little bit of background. I'm, I'm an anthropologist as well as a poet. And Kill Class is based on two years of field work I did within um, the United States, actually. But there were training camps built to resemble the Middle East, so fake mosques, fake markets. And they hire Middle Eastern individuals to act out the insurgent and the mayor. Um, 
And uh, so this gives sort of a bit of a glimpse into, into the work. And so I'm going to start with a poem called The Anthropologist. And it's sort of a, an arrival narrative. I bring my waterproof notebook, Arabic phrase book, bug spray, a terror of snakes. I drive the wrong way, and the car is spat onto sanitary field road or onto the road for Normandy or littler massacres or for the meat you eat after. Do I take it with vinegar or sweet, separate the shoulder from the rib, spit me onto pork chop hill, ham road, chicken lane, devil way, and into the hold of these woods? So, what do you study? Is this part of a class for you? Jeeps grow and grow under the pines. It's true, they take me for barbecue after. Ask me, am I comfortable? Do I want dessert? And what do I think I know about them? And do I know any Americans who went to war, or don't I? And if I don't, who do I think I am? And do I agree that through my stomach, they will get my heart. And it's a true fact that there are a lot of streets named after meat around military bases. So strange, true, dark fact. Um, waking. Bullseye. The sun takes pavement and upturned faces equally. Do not blame it for knifing each next day open across fruit stalls or asphalt. Turquoise slivers between blinds. Lights clear ache, showers the sheets. You may or may not have a lover whose face is here or here and here and lit and dark. War catalogs. Soldiers collect and number. Pigment, hair, jade, roasted meat, timber, cum, the enemy's flute, the face of an enemy as he holds his young, the enemy's face the moment it's harmed. The woods are a class and what they can take. The country is fat. We eat from its side. This poem is called Motel Six, after the war game. And it's, also, it's another sort of setting the scene poem for the book. And um, it has a bunch of uh, the Middle Eastern role players in it. <clears throat> Motel Six, after the war game. The field glows off and on like fluorescent screens of televisions in faraway apartments. After the games, I fold into the smoky flowered coverlet of the motel, floating across the long black river of the highway. Today, Omar ran in the woods alongside the training boys. Yusuf compared it to camping. Hanat gossiped about Laith. Laith pretended to die. Ahmed cracked open sardines to share in the grass, their spines melting immediately to nothing, our mouths smeared with salt, 
Omar pretended to be a bad guy, Nafisa, who they all agreed at the Arby's afterwards has a very bad story, fell inside the game. Inside the flowered coverlet, before the day blinks black, I hold the dream of a you in my center. I stop the motel bed from going under. I keep the world above water until I sleep. What is growing in these woods? <coughs> Green in here, gleaming like being inside a fable with stalls of fruit you can't eat. To go home, leave crumbs. When the wood circles you back here instead, let the lost and the impossible ripen in you. Ripen and go. Mass casualty event. Watching from inside the game, billowing gases for camouflage, clouds of green, luminous clouds of yellow, the flushed faces of the major's child, our faces, white gold torches in the meadow. I am in war. No. I am in a game of war. No. I am in a painting. Human technology. <coughs> Sunlit and dangerous, this country road. We are follicle and meat and terror, and the machines leave their shells naked on the ground. One soldier makes a museum in his basement, each mannequin in brass, in combustible coats. I am walking between their blank faces, their bullets traveling at the speed of sound. One soldier who roasted a pig on his par porch, barbecuing until sinews were tender, tells me he waited above the Euphrates, and if they tried to pass, even after we told them not to, they deserved it. Hop, deserve it. Hop, deserve it. Euphrates, your dark tunnel out, is rippling around us. In the war, a child approaches a tank as one soldier counts the child's steps. In the town, I drink a bottle of wine with that soldier among barber shops, boot repair shops. Is she my friend? I weep to her. I've lost who I thought I loved. And she says, I did this thing. And to whom was that child beloved? Find a common ground, the soldiers say. Humanize yourselves. Classify the norm of who you're trying, who you're talking to. Try to echo it. Do this for your country, says one soldier. We are sharks wearing suits of skin. Zip up. This spring, in the chilly, barely blooming city, Solma says, enough of this empty, this empty word, empathy. Ask for more, for rage, for love. On the porch, as the sun goes, the dark pools around us, and one soldier says, it is nightfall. I am tired. I did not mean for it to go on this long. That soldier across the table, we lock eyes. He tells me, 
In the occupied land, we are the arm, they are the weapon. The weapon, in this case, is a person. Choose a person who knows who is bad. Make them slice open the skin of their country. Only they can identify the enemy. Say yes or no. If a man squints while under the date palm. If a woman does not swing her arms while walking. Sir, my child was not with the enemy. He was with me in this kitchen, making the lebna at home. The yogurt still is fresh on his wrist. I'll read just one more. This is called, The Soldier Takes the Anthropologist to the Shooting Range. After shooting, we go to the buffet, and there is so much meat, chicken and fat and cuts of hog, then banana pudding with crumbled cookies. We eat so much, it is awful, almost. What do I want with this place? I've got a candle in me, it won't quit. Later, we walk through his tomatoes, lush and stemmy. There's one fruit, green. I came again, and why? To be next to it, whatever it is, and not die? You look for the dark, Billy says, in things. The wick is lit like a gun. The targets, once birds, changed into silhouettes with red kill spots, heart shots. Billy knows what it, he, does, and did. The hole in the throat, the eyes so surprised. If you hold it wrong, it will bite your thumb. He presses my back. It goes when I press. I jump when it goes. The round so splits her. Nerves, root, where to take cover in this field of copper teeth. Don't shoot so high. You're aiming at God. Then I went in. Did I know what I did? It rang with a ping. Bullseye, red as a torch. He threw up his arms. I was I. It was done. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was really beautiful. So if the three poets could um, have a seat at the table, we'll have some time for questions. Okay, so if anyone has a question or a comment, I will bring you the mic. Thank you very much. Good evening. Very nice presentation. In some of the poetry readings, you were reading about the young people you the millennials. So my question is, um, when I, and in fact, when I was we were growing up, we were reading, you know, from a book and from a blackboard and sheets of paper. Nowadays, you use computer and other types of technology. So my question is to capture the millennial mind as far as the written word. Um, in terms of technology, you know, we have a music video. Is there such a thing as poetry video, where the, the music is playing in the background, the words come up and all that? What about that idea? Where do we go from here? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think there are all sorts of possible directions for poetry while um, not abandoning prior um, forms and attention to craft. And there are all kinds of uh, multimedia poetries that are sort of proliferating, digital poetries. Um, there's a series of uh, motion poems where poems are made into films. And so um, I think 
there is a, a play between um, different modes and forms that's absolutely happening now. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on Instagram? Poetry and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Me? Um, I don't do, I'm not on Instagram. Uh-huh. Um, I just am interested in good good poetry that also moves people. Uh-huh. Yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> um, I think poetry for me is, is based on the word. That being said, I definitely think it could appear on Instagram or appear in a, in a video, but for me it's based on the word and the sonic. Sometimes the sonic interplay or the, or the formal interplay or the uh, resonance around the meaning, the literal meaning, not, you know, all the other aspects of meaning. Uh, I'm not sure who I press this. Oh, it's working. I can yes. yeah. It's working. It's working. I can, yeah. Um, I'm experimenting. You also are <laughs> trying the mic. Um, it's an interesting time. There's a lot of transition, I think, going on right now. I think um, uh, there's a decision to be made between the delivery of poetry through new media uh, and in many ways, poetry that may not be drastically different from the poetry we've read, appreciated, written, or aspired to uh, in our lives, uh, those of us who are a little bit older. And then there's also, I think, an interesting kind of um, question that's emerging between, I guess it's a blurring of the distinction between the words that appears on the page and the performance itself. Um, obviously, um, when someone else covers a song by an artist that we admire, we can hear more clearly what the distinction is between the song itself and the original artist's performance of it. Um, but I think um, you know, the Instagram poets are thinking of Ruby Coward off the top of my head, just to be specific. Um, some of them are poems, uh, I think, that when separated from the media in which they're delivered, are not particularly strong. I don't know if that really matters, because you know, there's really no uh, arbiter these days of, you know, this is a good poem, and this is a bad poem, and these poets matter, and these poets don't. In some ways, it's very good, because it's allowed us a whole flood of different kinds of poetry, different kinds of readers, different kinds of approaches. Um, but I do worry um, about um, people keeping in mind that distinction. There's always been folks like, you know, Rod McEwen, I think of the 60s and 70s, and you know, things that open a door for people that don't read a lot of poetry, but it's exciting for them to discover it, and maybe they want to write and read and discover more substantive poets as a result. But, uh, but I think... Um, uh, uh, that as we look at these poetries that are part of other media, and of course I include you know, rap and hip hop too, there's a lot of tremendously you know, great stuff going on, but you know, perhaps it works best as a performance in the context in which it's originally delivered rather than separated from it. So that's something I think to keep in mind, and, and I'm not going to say whether millennials see these things differently or not, I'm not qualified to do that. I think that people you know, differ more individually than by generation. But anyway, I'll leave with that. Can I ask you about the, the Near Eastern Village experience and everything? You, you did that two years, is that right? Mm-hmm. How, how did the Army, why did the Army go along with it? What was their interest in having you there studying them? Um, you know, I, was a, I was a PhD student in anthropology at the time, and I, uh-huh. I cold called about 15 bases. And in fact, they weren't particularly interested in having me visit. Um, and then in a sort of... Um, Remarkable coincidence, there was um, a point person, um, a public affairs um, contact in, the, in, the, in one of the bases who happened to be a poet. Um, and um, he Googled me, and really mostly what he could find online about me was, was my poetry. And, and he said, Oh gosh, I would love to bring a poet here. <laughs> so yeah. that's honestly how I, I got in, wow. ultimately. Yeah. 
That's cool. Yeah. So did you have personal relationships with all these soldiers? I mean, did you just observe them from afar, or did you actually get no, to know them? No, I got to know them. It was two years, so it was yeah. a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> have any of them responded to? Have you shown any of those people the poems that came out of these? There is actually um, a review that came out um, from a, there was a military review, um, and that was interesting because I had sort of been reticent. My work is very, as an anthropologist and as a poet, as a human, I'm very critical of empire and militarism. Um, and the, the institutions, although I have you know, relationships with individuals. And so I was a little bit reticent about um, sharing some of these poems. Um, and this, this particular review was really actually quite positive and, and did acknowledge that I had been critical, but um, suggested that was warranted. So, yeah. Dad, is all your uh, poetry kind of formal? Or yeah, yeah, I think uh, these days it's so. I mean, when I was first writing, I wrote a good deal of three verse, and, and, and I just found that I think probably for my um, third book, there's a fair amount of it you know, in each book. But, but I've been turning more toward formal work, but in all different contexts. I mean, I've been recently working on some syllabic poems. Um, I think there's, there's, a, there's a range um, to be achieved through that approach, but it's only my approach. It's not a prescriptive approach. It's not that I look around and say, oh, people ought to write in form or ought to write in meter. There are a lot of great poets that do who I admire from my peers and folks I look up to. Um, and then there are lots of folks that don't. My wife was sitting in the audience back there, James Satterfield. Um, there's you know, several books out, four books out, uh, poetry and other books as well. She uh, never writes. Never, it might be too strong, almost never. Well, I can count on one hand the number of poems that she's written in form, but uh, in meter, I should say. Like, but of course, organic form, open form, spring verse, that's a different type of form. It's a way of discovering the kind of organic principle that links you know, everything together, the images, the language, the, the experience. So it's just another approach to form. And so I guess you go where, um, you know, I had like a, a wildly experimental free verse book that was a finalist for publication three times when I was in my 30s and it never came out. Had it ever been chosen to be published, perhaps I would have kept writing in that mode. But I also but I wrote simultaneously in both modes. So I guess I've gone more this way because, hey, people like it, or at least some people like it. And those that hate it, well, they're not paying attention anyway. So there's my own stance. Thank you for asking. Yeah, what did you translate? And did the other, did the other poets do any translating? Oh, I'll, I'll keep this short. I've been working on a translating. Uh, I actually finished the translation of Paul Valery's Le Jeune Park, and he's the young fate. And uh, it, it's a, and the thing that's keeping me from going further with it is uh, writing the notes. Because you, know, you can like, develop your intro from the grant application you do for the NEA, but to write the notes, you've got to sit down and explain you know, where you failed and fell short and should have done a better job and why and who inspired you as a translator. Um, I, I, and so I've done a lot of translation out of German and French, um, just out of college you know, classes that gave me enough knowledge to read slowly with a dictionary. Uh, and uh, and uh, so, yeah, uh, and, uh, and so let me hand it over to other folks.
Um, I uh, translate Arabic insofar as uh, I translate my interviews and sometimes um, you know, stories, anecdotes, songs, poems that people offer to me, but I don't do what I would call literary translation Arabic. I only translated once. Uh, a friend of mine, he's a scientist, he wanted to translate three Goethe poems, one of which is called The Name of the Beloved, and, and he read German, so we spent like about a year on those three poems, and, and uh, The Name of the Beloved came out in measure about 10 years ago, I think. Um, and one of the interesting things about it was um, it was actually, this is like, I guess the early 1800s. So Goethe was actually, it's actually a folk poem. And they were all writing, he did, my friend of the research, they're all writing the same poem. And Goethe had read the, another version and then just said, well, you know, I could do it better and, and did write this beautiful poem. So it's kind of interesting um, in terms of creativity because I think here we are, we uh, in America, and as myself included, think of originality post the 20th century or post certainly modernism as being new, but uh, originality um, could have also meant in Goethe's time uh, a reviving or redoing. Of, so. You learn from translation, I think, is I guess the tidbit from that, and I'm sure we could, we'd all agree. Actually, uh, I should also mention you can, you can see a portion of that translation mentioned in an older issue of Hopkins Review. You can check out a database of Project News on. Um, okay. Well, I don't know, could you maybe just for one closing question, maybe you could each you could each mention um, one writer that you've been reading lately who inspires your work or helps you generate <laughs> more work. Um, I am reading a lot of craft essays right now, um, and so I'm going back to kind of old beloveds. Um, Jim Longenbach is what I'm reading at the moment. Yeah. I would just read um, uh, Rilke's Dunio Allergies is translated by <coughs> this guy Gary Miranda. It's based out of Tavern Books, and Gary, uh, Mr. Miranda, memorized each allergy, as he says, and then translated it. And it's a really beautiful edition. It's um, just such a heartfelt edition, and rather than just a purely intellectual one, and uh, a beautiful edition. I'm, I can't wait to reread it. Do you know who published it? Tavern, uh, Tavern Books, which is a relatively new press, about 10 years old, out of Fort Norton. And they're doing a lot of translations, actually. Uh, they're, they're specializing, but half their list is translations. Well, I think uh, recently, um Books of A.D. Stalin's Like, uh, which is a, recently a, a Pulitzer Prize, a wonderful book. Um, also, Erica Dawson's When Rap Spoke Straight to God, um, book life poem, really wonderful. Uh, and uh, also, Arvina Escalade, um, and After All, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, book, quite formal, but beautifully uh, executed. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, there's an Eastern short poem in Adam Tabell. We have several books out. The Fauna Biss and Cat Hawk is another one, and you know, he's really quite a fine poet. So there's there's four good ones, and of course Jane Satterfield, uh, and, uh, and uh, check out her, her uh, David St. John selected poem in Autumn House, a book on Autumn House, which is uh, called Apocalypse Mix. It was also about war, so you know, you might even enjoy yourself. And and also uh, guest in the audience, the talented, the handsome, talented, and articulate Joker Pista. Who's Hollis Summers Prize winning book, um, uh, Intrusive Beauty, 
uh, recently appeared too. Um, of course, if you weren't here, I wouldn't have even mentioned it. But <laughs> <laughs> why the heck not? Frank, um, this latest volume, how much of a departure is it if it is from your earlier poems? Um, it's a departure in the sense of, uh, in the sense of, I was writing a lot of political poetry um, in about, since the beginning of the Iraq War in 2003, and then uh, that did that for about 10 years. And then I, I decided, I still do write other political things, but um, this, um, I'm really excited about this, and also it'll be a present for my, um, just on a personal level, it'll be a present for my children, so I'm super excited about that. Did you know it would look like the Mueller report? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, looks, it looks totally different, and I would say like it's so much healthier to spend that time with your own life and your own family and focus on, but you should gotta pay attention to what's going on. It's much healthier for me. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so funny. Um, does anyone else? Did anyone else want to make a raise a question? Okay. Well, I guess um, we could uh, move on to closing poems. If each of you would like to read a poem, um, maybe we should reverse the order, and, or um, and then um, yeah. Thank you for the questions, everyone. Oh, you can get up. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you, you asking if you wanted to? You said one poem, yeah. Yeah, or three minutes. Three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. Yeah, you can do more than one. Right. Yeah, you're welcome to either read from the table or um, whatever you prefer. Okay. It may be the sound may be better. Am I, from here. Am I audible from here? <clears throat> okay. Field notes from the edge. This is not in the book. Stars throw their snow on the water. Quietly we gather a document with the numbers, the tiny echoing laughs, the rows of cabbage and their lush toughness a list of every loved one's hungers. I love you, I'm here, don't go under. I'll read one more, that was a mini one. Anthropocene. Nesting, the turtle seems to be crying, even though she is simply secreting her salt. Her dozens bud limbs inside amniotic pillows as she leaves every egg in a cup of sand the size of her body, shaped like a tilting teardrop, and both cryings are mentioned by scientists. My niece Eve is startle-eyed when you feed her avocado and when you feed her sweet potato. She lives mouth first. She would eat the sidewalk and piano, the symmetrical petals of the Bradford pear as if she could learn which parts of the world are made and how. And yesterday, she put her mouth on the image of her own face in the mirror. Larkin says what will survive of us is love, but the scientists say that the end of the decay chain is lead and uranium, and after that, plastics. 
Just now, the zooplankton are swallowing micro-pearls of plastic, and the sea is aflame with waste, caught in the moon's light. Here is the darkening hour, and here the shore, as she droplets her eggs, bright as ping-pong balls, into the sand. She can't find the spot. The beach is saltined with lights, neoned with spectacular globes of light, a dozen moons instead of the one moon. Still, she lets them go, and one month later, tiny turtles hatch. They seem groggy, carrying their houses of bone and cartilage to the ocean, scrambling toward the horizon alongside the Earth's magnetic field. Less than 1% of the hatchlings make it past the seagulls and crabs, so Noah spent a summer dashing them to the water. But my poem is not about the moment when a bird dove and bore into the underflesh and into Noah's memory. My poem is about how we are gathered around Eve in the kitchen as she eats a fruit she has never tried before, and each newness in the world stops the world's ending in its tracks. Thank you again for everybody for being here, for the for Naomi and Ben for uh, your poetry and for sharing tonight. Um, so I'm going to read a new poem too. This is actually uh, this actually was written after I was I'm reading Stalling's book as well, Life, which is beautiful, and um, she has a, a, a couple of amazing poems in there. But one is just the short one called Pencil, and actually I write it with a pen. So I remember reading it. I was like, man, you're, you're so correct. I'm like, what am I going to do? Because um, <laughs> if I have to write with a pencil, then I don't. Uh, but I decided, I thought about it, and I wrote this. This is called Pen, so I'm going to write with a pen. It's not to disagree, it's just a different point of view. Um, and this was written on March 30th. Lake Middle Ages warm as you arrive to see your life in equidistance and moments rippling. Like a minor shifting stream, sifting streams, you start a diary, again as if 16, but this dialogue just seems. With pencil, mark, remove what's accurate or close, but pen with its ugly cross-outs reflects your heart the most. It is the age of pens, with marks scaffolding time, a trailblazing dance of intent, of a mess if you say, hey, it's mine. <laughs> it was lovely again. Thank you. It's so nice to be here um, and to see friends, um, old and new. Rosemary Hotline, of course. It's lovely to see you. Uh, there's this great, uh, back in the day, uh, Rosemary did so much work for a, a Baltimore, Maryland poet. Uh, Maryland Poetry Review, and uh, there's this old issue I have, Michael Fallon as well. Uh, I have a, a, also a wonderful poet, by the way. Um, well, I wish I could get hold of your poems in some solid form. Maybe you'll tell me how I can do this. Um, and, uh, but in any case, um, yeah, Rosemary uh, uh, was so much of a force here, and, and, and uh, uh, I have this issue of Maryland Poetry Review from way back in the day, and it has uh, poems by so many folks that I've gone on to become friends with, uh, some of whom I didn't know at the time. Um, one I didn't know at the time, James Satterfield, 
um, who I've actually seduced into becoming my wife. Um, I'm thinking of, um, uh, of Maura Egan, too, who so many of us know, and is a wonderful poet, and a Maryland poet as well. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, I think that the poem that, uh, that you uh, took um, was, a, uh, was a, a poem about birds. Uh, so I should try to find a poem about birds here. And, uh, and then end up with maybe one other real short one. Let's keep these short since I'm going on too long. Um, a parable of flight. Um, wouldn't it be great if lizards flew? The world's mind, thought, and thinking made it true. The pterosaur ascendant in the sky will last an age and over eons die. The world's mind, thought, and thinking made it true. From trilobite to slow triceratops, some good ideas would over eons die. The bird-hipped dinosaur to baby steps past trilobite beyond triceratops to archaeopteryx, the feathered lizard saw the sky. No time for baby steps. Sharp claws and teeth protected it from hazard. Though the creature looked less bird than lizard. Was its blood perhaps already warm? Sharp claws and teeth protected it from hazard when it fought, inflicting real harm. The blood of carrion is always warm. Who flew beside the starling and the crow? The passenger pigeon, though it meant no harm, rose up in great flocks, shadowing the snow. But who survived? The starling and the crow. And yet the world's mind also loves a joke. Ostrich and emu, striding over snow, lush belt, or outback, took another look because the world's mind always loves a joke and said, no thanks, the concept in reverse. The dodo, too, from which a single look, sad-eyed, brought traitors' clubs down with a curse, followed survival's trend line in reverse. Would it have fared much better in the sky? It couldn't tell a blessing from a curse. Earthbound, unfortunate, it never flew. Now I'll end with uh, one poem. This is actually a book that's a short poem sonnet coming out in December uh, from the New Criterion uh, Poetry Prize. I was very fortunate to have books kind of cluster as they rarely do now as I enter my golden years, not too far off. Um, uh, that's somehow happened, I guess, because the backlog I've got to be so much. So this is called For a Mother Born During the Great War as my adopted mother was, in fact, born in 1916. Too soon they leave us, but in time our dead, lives measured by the anniversaries we honor or forget, accept release and offer it to us. One day, instead of adding one more year to those they had, wishing them back to life, we realize the sum exceeds a lifetime, and we freeze in what we've always known. Life's limited and less than what we're owed, or think we're owed. I hear you sometimes. Do you hear me too? Voices reciprocal, lost time renewed as if, still at the wood's edge out of view, I heard you call at midday from the flood of all that followed, and I answered you. Yes. Um, to the three poets. This has been a really lovely evening that you provided us with, especially thank you to everyone for coming. Good night.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.